Um, what is today? Today is the fourth or fifth week of our series uh, about progressive Christianity, turning northward, and just defining these five tenets that are markers of our faith and the way that we do community here at Grace Point in terms of philosophy, theology, the way we look at things. Um, this week we're looking at the tenet, it's the fifth of the five, uh, we refer to it as the mind as friend. Um, the other four are radical inclusivity. We've talked also about inherent union as opposed to the idea of separation, inherent separation. Um, Melissa last week talked about eternal life in the now. It's a both and. We're not just putting everything into the afterlife. And then the idea of progressive revelation continuing. Progressive revelation being an idea that has been a part of the Christian church and most religions that says that uh, God continues to speak, God continues to speak, truth continues to unfold. Uh, the Judeo-Christian faith has always held to progressive revelation but believed that it ended with the apostles almost 2,000 years ago. And it is the belief of many Christians that it did not end, that God is still speaking. Um, I wrote something just a few weeks ago and posted it on Facebook, just a simple statement. In every discipline of study, from biology to astronomy to medicine, we are accumulating information and wisdom. Why would theology be the one discipline that fixed all of its ideas centuries ago? That makes no sense. In the academy, in academic institutions, a part of every professor's life is not only teaching, but also the idea of research. Um, whether you're an accountant or a biologist, if you are in an academy of learning, you're not just teaching students, but you're learning yourself and you're researching because we just have a sense that the universe is continually unfolding and we have not even scratched the surface of this multiverse, this reality that we live in. Why would we, in the matter of human spirituality, in this incredibly important subject of creation and creator and where we came from, where we're going, why would that be the one area, the one academic area or area of interest that we cease exploration? We numb out curiosity and we do not encourage research. Again, that makes simply no sense to me. This idea of the mind as friend is not an idea in my section of Christianity. It's not an idea that I grew up with. I remember all of my life, um, academics were always, just a, a, a note about myself, academics were always important to me personally. And I don't know that it was academics and learning that was as important as much as I was a type A and I, 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 even as a child, had a neurotic sense, almost pathological sense of a disappointed God. And that carried over into every area of my life. And so I was always trying to achieve, whether it was um, winning the race or throwing the touchdown or passing the test. Um, Anne Lamott said, I was 38 years old and had endured two decades of counseling before I realized a B-plus was a good grade. And that's kind of who I was. And it was always this desire to achieve and to, uh, to really achieve the affirmation or approbation of people because I didn't have an internal sense of that. It never made me high. 
because I started so low, it would just kind of bring me up to a place of normalcy. If, like, if, if there's enough pain, uh, the opiate is not going to get you high. It's just going to relieve the pain. If you don't have pain, then you can get high. Those opioids of approbation, affirmation, and performance never made me high. They just helped me not feel so horrible about myself. So I was always that overachieving kid trying to have some sense of inner worth, and that, that certainly carried over to academics. But all of my life, I lived in this tension of doing well academically and that being important for whatever reason in my life, and in my religious life, having that diminished, demeaned, as something that um, was okay, but not really all that important. Uh, but I continued on without the affirmation of my church, working in every class and learning and trying to do my best and ended up doing well academically. And I remember uh, uh, it was my, the end of my senior year. I had worked so hard and I had done well on national merit, national merit scholarships and ACTs and SATs that I had the ability to go to a lot of good universities. Um, my son right now is a senior in high school and I, I'm trying not to live vicariously through him as he's doing all of his work because when that was offered me, I remember um, sitting in my room one day with letters of acceptance from University of Missouri at Rolla, MIT, Dartmouth, Cornell, And, and I remember sitting there thinking, I am not going to be able to do this. It's not going to be allowed me. And in the middle of that, I remember going to church one evening. One of the authorities, one of the leaders of our movement, was a, one of the big guys from headquarters was there. And he was a really smart guy. And I remember I caught him. And forgive the personal musing, but I think this probably relates to a lot of us. I remember... I caught him in the back after church. I was this 18-year-old young preacher, and I was supposed to go to our non-accredited Bible school with all of those opportunities. And I thought maybe he would be sympathetic and maybe he would encourage me. And I laid it all out before him, and I remember he looked at me and he said, Brother Stan, we called one another brother back then. It was quite embarrassing at the mall when somebody would holler at you, you know, across the way, Brother Stan! And your friends from school were there. They're like, my God, what in the Sam Hill is that? But um, he said, Brother Stan, he said, we have learned that our young people who go to secular universities, more than 98% of them leave the faith. Now, you know, there's a couple ways to take that, isn't there? <laughs> but how do you think we took it? The secular university is bad. Learning is the enemy. The mind is in opposition. The mind is the devil's playground. But I'll never forget when he said that to me. He said it with such authority. 98% of our young people who do not go to our Bible colleges but go to secular universities leave the faith. And I remember looking at him and I felt a jolt of lightning that screamed at me, well, something is wrong with our faith. But that never even crossed his mind. It was very clear to him. 
Duh. 98% of our kids lose their faith if they go to secular universities. So secular universities are bad, right? So I, I didn't. And over the course of those years as I was a young evangelist in that movement, I privately and quietly, um, I, I learned codependence. It's one of the remarkable things about going to adult children of alcoholics groups. Now, for me, you find out, even though I didn't have alcoholics as parents, that children raised in those kind of funda fundamentalist backgrounds with an irrational, erratic, inconsistent God, it's the same thing almost as being raised in an alcoholic home. The insecurities and the performance and the manipulation and the managing that you learn to survive. So I literally, behind the scenes, pecked away through Arkansas State University and University of Arkansas at Little Rock and Free Will Baptist Bible College and some online institution somewhere. I picked together and cobbled together my own bachelor degree because I just could not resist the idea of learning and exposing my mind to these things. Same time as a young preacher, I was sitting around a campfire with a group of young preachers um, other friends of mine it was at a camp meeting and we were sitting around privately and I remember at that point I was just laying out for them as a young 20 21 year old preacher I was laying out for them some of the misgivings that I had about our doctrines and specifically I remember I was talking in our faith our women could not trim their hair they couldn't cut their hair and our girls had this imposition of never even being able to trim their dead ends and my parents were always kind of the rogues that pushed against that. My, I remember all my life, my mom would, every now and then, the migraines would get too much. She would cut her hair, and she would be removed from the organ. She couldn't play the organ. I remember one time in particular, the pastor came by and said, Sister Shirley, we're going to miss your organ playing. If you'll just repent and wear your hair up where they can't see the ends, I'll let you back on the... So that was my life, running out across the pasture to tell mom the preacher's coming. And she would run in, she'd get off the horse and run in and replace her slacks with a dress just in time for the preacher to come in. It was in that world that I just, my, I never could shut my mind down. I just could never make it shut up. And if I ever let out my misgivings or my thoughts to any of my seniors or those that were above me, it was always the same. You know, the devil is trying to trick you. The carnal mind. They, they call that the carnal mind. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. And that's the way. In the absence of good answers, the only thing that religion can fall to, or politics, or any other dominating system, in the absence of good thought, the only thing you can use then is fear and manipulation. And we learned that very well. As I was sitting around that campfire, I was talking in particular about the fact that our girls couldn't cut their hair and how I just didn't think that one passage in 1 Corinthians 11, it just made no sense to me that in a world where 10,000 children are starving to death every day, that God's so worried about a woman trimming the dead ends of her hair. But it made sense to our people, didn't make sense to me. I, I thought maybe something was wrong with me, so I was always trying to find these private areas under the cover of night to talk to people. And as I was sitting there, I remember a couple of the young guys leaned in, and, and they said, you know, essentially, me too. And, and my story might be extreme, and it might be a caricature of your story, but I think all of us raised in fundamentalist or conservative or evangelical or Catholic traditions, we have some sense of this, don't we? You had a fraction of this at least. And I remember as we were sitting there and we be, were beginning to kind of 
have a logical conversation, one of the senior ministers, Chris, walked up behind me. And I remember the guys getting that look on their face, like, whoa. And I kept talking, and I didn't know he was there. And he stood there ominously listening. And I'll never forget this. It still just, I don't know what it does to me. But in a moment, as they stood there, or they sat there quietly, and I just kept talking. In, in a moment, I felt a thump on the back of my head. He thumped me on the back of my head. I'll never forget, he walked around and stood between me and the campfire, and he said, Stan Mitchell, if you keep letting your mind run wild with these thoughts against the truth, one of these days, he told me, with that preacher voice, that every ounce of ominous stature that he could muster, he said, one of these days, God's going to walk by you hearing you talk like this. And God's going to say, Stan Mitchell. Because you know that's the way God talked, right? <laughs> Stan Mitchell, you want to believe these things? I'll help you. And he reached up and grabbed my hair. And he turned it. And he said, and God's going to turn something in your mind. And the Bible says he'll turn you over to a reprobate mind to believe a lie and be damned. And he turned around and walked off. What's a kid 20 years old? Whether it's Pentecostal, Church of Christ, Fundamentalist, Baptist, Catholic. What's a kid five generations deep, genetically at a cellular? What do you do in that moment? i tell you what you do. You shiver. And you look in the fire and you think, Oh, God, I don't want to burn forever for thinking. Please. And this box called orthodoxy with rigid walls and set standards. It, it's such an irony and it's such a, it's, such a, it's such a contradiction. You have this brain that God gave you. And then you have this living Christ that's a part of you. And you're set in that box and you begin the journey. And you start growing and the growth is exhilarating, but before too long, very quickly, the growth starts getting you near those walls that are fixed and rigid. And there are heresy alarms on those walls that if you begin to touch them, the alarms go off. And somebody thumps you in the back of the head. Excommunication happens. Dismissal happens. The disappointment of family happens. And you start like... Like that ancient practice of foot constriction. You start morphing and twisting the foot to try to keep it small enough until you cripple yourself to keep it in the shoe. You do that with your brain. You want to quit growing. You want to quit thinking. But you can't. And to some degree, it not only feels like that's coming out of this thing called the carnal mind, it feels like it's coming out of your soul. And, and they... The fear, the fear is that the authority somehow is the truth. But as Gerald Massey said, authority is not truth. Truth is authority. When in the world did we ever make authority the truth just because they're the authority? It's a, it's a wonderful way to control masses of people. It is a horrible way to live life, though. So that was 
the world that I grew up in. The mind is the devil's playground. We, were, we didn't have suspicious minds. We were suspicious of the mind. And we constricted our own growth to stay away from those walls. But I couldn't do it. Another little post about myself I made the other day that was disclosing. I called it codependent reformer. For those of you that know the Enneagram, I am a dastardly mix of a three, which is a stage performer. A person who loves and cares and is motivated and driven and wants success. A type A. I'm a three. The shadow side of a three is you're a stage person. And if you're not careful, your whole life becomes a performance. So the shadow side, the worst side of three. When three goes wrong, you can be a chameleon. And in the worst form, even a duplicitous person. But the good side of a three is a wonderful thing. It's made me what I am. But... I wing out, I, I skip two, and I wing out with a one. I have always been a reformer, too. I have always been a person who, I, I've been, I have been, I'll get, here's a confession. I've been stealing dogs out of people's yards all my life. If I see a dog being mistreated or left out in the cold, I don't even ask. I just go cut the chain and take the dog and find it a good home. Sue me. I love animals, and I hate to see animals mistreated. I was the kid in kindergarten that when the stinky kid was being made fun of, I couldn't stand it. I sat beside them. I've always had a reforming spirit. I've always felt like standing up for the underdog. I've always, I've never been able to just accept the status quo, and I do not believe I'm a rebel without a cause. It always feels deeply like it's not just some psychological need to be important, but some deep-seated soul need to love people. That's the way I feel. But when you mix a three with a reformer, it occurred to me recently that I've always had in my soul the radically opposing forces of one, an inquisitive reforming spirit, and two, the codependent frailty of needing to please people or avoiding at all costs disappointing those I love. I can say to this day, the hardest part of my journey, I'm a 48-year-old man, the most difficult part of my journey in changing and growing theologically and leading this church and being who I am, the most single most difficult part has been my own family, my own parents. I do believe I'm psychologically capable of disappointing my parents and being at peace with that. I am never at peace with the fact that what I have done and the way I think hurts them. I, I don't get anything out of that except pain. That is a great sorrow to me. But when you mix an inquisitive reforming spirit with a, the codependent frailty of wanting to avoid disappointing those that you love, these two realities have virtually been impossible to reconcile in my life. They have at times torn me apart they have at times made me seem either an angel or a demon in people's lives when in reality I'm neither, I'm just a human. But this is the kind of journey and struggle, Drew, that people go through in religious environments as their mind unequivocally refuses to quit growing. The psychology, the sociology, the pain that is inflicted upon the religious mind 
because of growth is immense. And if we opened it up today, the stories, very similar to mine, could just go on and on and on and on. The mind. I remember as a young boy getting contraband, religious literature written by people other than our people and putting it under my bed. It, I, I've joked before, I, I didn't have access to Playboys. It was, Max Licato was my Playboy, literally. I get a Max Licato book and put it under the bed and hide it. I had to hide it. It was external literature. It was outside of our way of thinking. Okay, there was the J.C. Penney catalog, but the um, but I remember reading early on a quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. that the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size think about it the mind, once exposed, Troy, to a better idea, can never shrink to its original size. I remember hearing quotes like, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. I remember the first time I, I realized that the Greek word for mystery, that Paul said the mystery of God has been revealed and is being, the Greek said, literally revealed, I remember when that word came alive to me and I realized that mysterion in Greek did not mean what mystery means to us today. For us, mystery is that thing that is unknowable. Mysterion, that we translate mystery in scripture, mysterion in classic Greek meant infinitely knowable. Think about that, Rob. Infinitely knowable. That's not the religion that I grew up in. The mystery was revealed, completely explained by the end of the first century. Paul said this mystery is not only not knowable, this mysterion of Christ and God and life and the cosmos, this mysterion is infinitely knowable. Holy mackerel. Do you see the difference between not knowable and infinitely knowable? Infinitely knowable means that when you explore, you, you get past the molecule to the atom, you get past the atom to the electrons and the protons, you get past those to the quark, and then you've got this atomic interstitial material that we've yet been able to really get to, not because it's not there, but because our lenses aren't effective enough yet. And we look at all of life into the cosmos and into the atom and know that it is infinitely knowable. There is no such thing as nothing. There is no such thing as zero. You'll never get there. Either that way or this way. And every mystery that is revealed, every part of the mysterion that is revealed, as soon as you get the answer, religion loves to build a wall around that answer and say, now the mystery is done. But it's not true. With every revealing of the mystery, with every answer, three new questions open. And the exponentiality of those questions, for every one of them, that is answered, three new questions. This is 
from glory to glory, Paul said. It is a mysterion that is infinitely noble. The early church wrestled with these things deeply. The early church did not immediately come to grips with a perfect and complete orthodox apostolic doctrine. The second century was rife with many denominations. Ebionites, Marcionites, adoptionists. There were in the second century church so many people thinking so many different ways about Christ. So many different thoughts about God. But eventually in the third and fourth century... Christianity became a part of the empire for control, for the purposes of conversion and keeping, final answers had to be ascertained. And we came to a place of orthodoxy and all of these other people who thought all of these other different ways. Pelagius, who simply looked at Augustine and said, I just don't believe that two people could eat a fruit, and that means that I deserve to go to hell. Doesn't it make more sense that every one of us is born in their own Eden and takes a journey with God on their own? But eventually, Augustine held sway, and Pelagius was wiped from history. That entire group of second and third century denominations that did not make it into our orthodoxy or whose ideas did not make the cut, that entire group of people was just localized under one school of thought. They were all called Gnostics eventually. By the fourth century, it was just all Gnostics. And it's very interesting that that fail-sweep definition of all of those denominations is just Gnostics, which which is a, a, a terrible It's a terrible overreaction and overestimation or over, um, it's an overzealous defining. It's a misdefining. But Gnosticism was simply that group of people. Gnostic came from the word gnosis, which was Greek for knowledge. These people were simply castigated, Dave, as going after God with their minds. And of course, if you go after God with your mind... You could not do anything worse because God's not logical, God's not rational, God's not reasonable. Just Gnostics, people who got into their mind. And so we entered a period in the church where if you were not a thinker on an academic level who was ensuring the perpetuation, the passing of the baton of orthodoxy, we entered into a very dark era in the church. It was not only dark ages for humanity in the West, but it was dark ages for the church because only those professionals who were equipped with multi-languages and access to the text, only they, if they were committed to the keeping of the Orthodox faith, only they were allowed to speak to these things. And then in the 14th and the 15th century in Europe, a renaissance happened we began to access Greek writers and Greek thinkers. We did not access them through our own annals because those annals had been burned, those annals had been removed, or those annals were hidden. But our friends to the east in Mesopotamia, our Muslim friends, had never done away with the writings of Ptolemy and Aristotle and Socrates and Plato 
and we begin to access these Western thinkers through our friends to the East, our Arab friends. Their thinkers and their philosophers, even within Islam, had kept those thinkers alive, and thus the Renaissance was birthed in Europe. And it was the Renaissance mixed with the printing press that led to the Reformation within the Christian church. People at first on a clergy level begin to rise up and say authority cannot continue to claim unequivocally that it has the truth, all truth, and nothing but the truth. Authority cannot not be questioned. And a reformation happened, led by people like Luther and Zwingli. A reformation happened, and people began to question the church. And this Protestant reformation... This reformation of protest was initially a reformation simply that was laying claim to the possibility for every human being to have questions and to ask the church and for the church to be responsible to answer those questions. And if that answer was not satisfying, for that person to still have the soul's right to continue their thinking. Luther, we know proposed the idea of justification by faith, and that is always the ballyhooed idea. But he had 95 theses, and for Luther, one of the most important theses was what he called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity is a big fancy term, but if you think about it, per, from the Latin prefix peri, perimeter, simply means to be able to walk around and inspicuous, from which we get spectacle and spectator to see. Perspicuity meant that any human being, Luther said, had the ability to walk around the text and look into the text and use their mind to discern the text. And their questions were legitimate. It was not only paid clergy, but Luther said by the time this Reformation gets through, the plowboy will have the same access to God that the priest does. And I'm certainly, again, not diminishing the idea of professional rigor in any discipline, especially that of ministry. But this push for scripture to be perspicuous, for God to be perspicuous, for matters of faith to be perspicuous, that all of us have the ability, we should not be thumped in the back of the head, the heresy alarm should not be going off, and we certainly shouldn't be burned at the stake, simply because we have a mind. And that perspicuity of scripture led us to begin to push into things, not just like the justification by faith or access to scripture, but the renaissance that created the reformation also created other revolutions, scientific revolutions, industrial revolutions, academic revolutions. And all of these revolutions began to create lenses through which we were able to look into the universe and able to look into our bodies. And these lenses gave us the ability to criticize in the most positive way, to think critically about things that we had never seen before these lenses. These lenses of criticism. We begin to apply these lenses of criticism to everything, not just the stars, but we begin to apply these lenses of criticism to the way we thought about economics. These lenses of criticism birthed a discipline that now is only 150 years old called psychology. Paul, the discipline that you're a part of, this counseling therapeutic world. I remember when I first went and did a bachelor in psychology, I was amazed that after taking 60 hours of psychology courses, after the first four, they started doubling back on themselves and the material was all overlapping. And I asked one of my professor friends why, and he said, because this is such a new science. 
the body is just now building of information. It's just 150 years old. This exploration of the soul called psychology is so new. These critical lenses begin to reshape the way we thought about medicine and the blood that ran through our system. I, it's amazing to me that our first president just 225 years ago died because bloodletting with leeches went bad. It was just 110 years ago that if you wanted to have a tooth removed, your barber did it. Think about the exponentiality of knowledge in every discipline of life. I mean, we are accumulating wisdom and knowledge. The Renaissance created reformation and revolution. And when those same critical lenses began to be applied to our religious life, in the late 18th century, in the 1770s and 1780s, we begin to carry over these same lenses. And as we begin to apply these lenses, not just to botany and biology and organic chemistry, but as we begin to apply these things to our faith and our sacred text, we were astonished. We were astonished to find out that our creation story in the Judeo-Christian text that we thought was ours had been being told for thousands of years before us by other people. Ours wasn't the only flood story. People on these continents with no capacity to cross-pollinate with people on our continents were telling very similar stories. Snakes and trees and apples and things forbidden. And floods that wiped out worlds and angry gods. These critical lenses. Now, you may not conclude anything theologically, but these critical lenses, all of a sudden... Christians everywhere started grappling with the fact that ours wasn't the first virgin birth. For a thousand years in the Mediterranean rim before our virgin birth, hundreds of great leaders were born of a virgin who had been inseminated by a god. What do we do? Bishop Usher in the late 18th century was backlashing hard against all of that and he took the genealogies of the text and figured out that our world started in 4004 B.C. And per the scripture and genealogies within the text, it was a brilliant expose of mathematics. The problem was science and these critical lenses were saying, no, our world is actually older than 5,800 years. Kepler, Copernicus, Galileo. They were not Mother Teresa's and they were not saints. They were human beings. And they were simply looking through lenses. And, and what they were seeing in the universe did not line up with a literal reading of our core scientific text, which for us was still the Bible. And all they wanted to say was, this is a heliocentric universe. The earth is not at the center of the universe. And the problem with that was we knew in our narcissism that we absolutely was the, we were the only thing as human beings that God had going. Animals don't matter. Plants don't matter. The cosmos doesn't matter. We are the center of God's universe. We are God's only game. We are the only thing that matters. There's no way that we are not central to the entire cosmos. And Kepler and Copernicus and Galileo 
said, I don't know what to tell you. They were almost like the blind man when the Pharisees said, you cannot be seeing right now because that guy cannot heal you. And the guy said, I don't know whether he's a sinner. I don't know anything about him. All I do know is y'all keep arguing theology. I was blind, now I can see. And Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler just kept saying, we're not trying to destroy the church. They just looked at the priest and the authorities and said, you look through the lens. You tell us what you see. But their lens was not the critical lens of science, empiricism. Their lens was the lens of a tightly wooden-headed literal reading of a text and how we wrestled. Copernicus and Galileo both would have died at the stake except neither of them considered their science so critically a part of the conviction of their life that they were willing to die for it and they both made amended statements to keep themselves from death. They both backed down and said, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. And hundreds of years later, the church apologizes to them. We have a long history of being suspicious of the mind But as we continued thinking, often it was, it was embarrassing, it was aggravating, it was all manner of things psychologically to the church that very often thoughts that would eventually reshape the way we do church and the way we do life and the way we think about God as Christians, those thoughts did not begin in the seeds of our own heart, those thoughts came to us through society, through philosophers. We were not the first body of people. We were not the loudest body of people, for sure, in the late 18th century, who began to push for the abolition of slavery. We were not the first group of people who began to push for stake burning, inquisitions, and crusades to be eradicated. Within secular society, as philosophers began to recapture the idea of human dignity and human worth, some of them even atheist, at the most deist, these people and their new humanism placed such a value on human life that they could not imagine that it was appropriate for us to continue persecuting, prosecuting, and putting to death people who simply believe differently than we do. And it was their sense of humanity. It was the Friends Existentialist sense of humanity and human dignity that finally corrected the church and caused the church to say, we can't keep doing this. I mean, so many of us come from Calvinistic systems, Calvinistic backgrounds. Calvin was known for putting people to the death for believing wrong. But ultimately, the church was corrected. Human dignity um, does not allow for stake burning, does not allow for the persecution of people based simply upon religious belief. We have 
We have a long history in the Christian church. I'll say it like this and bring this to a close. We have a long history in the Christian church of having that wooden-headed fixed idea that we shrug our shoulders, thump people in the back of the head, point to God, and with all of the manipulative emotional rigor we can conjure, telling them, this is it, don't mess with it. Only to rock on for decades and centuries in that rigidity and ultimately find ourselves correcting ourselves and having to look back in retrospect and apologize. And, and that long history of having to apologize to our slaves, our women, our divorcees, our homosexuals, our scientists, that long history of having to apologize I think is bringing us to a place of crisis in the Christian church. It's bringing our young people to a place of crisis in the Christian church. They don't know if they can sustain with a church that is apologizing so late and fighting so hard, beating its head against an implacable wall, dying on hills that it shouldn't be dying on. Our young people really have severe question. What they're learning in our Sunday school classes and the rigor that we are giving them academically and theoretically and thought thoughtfully in their Sunday school settings and their religious upbringing by the time they get to their first semester of college the rigor that they face in their anthropology class and their sociology class and their psychology class and their philosophy class is so vastly beyond the way we're challenging them here that there is a credibility question for them often they are looking at us with dubiety they're looking at us with doubt that's why I was thankful to tell you today we are really challenging that here and as the founding senior pastor here I was so privileged last week to sit with our 15, 17 high school students. Steve, I sit there and I just asked them, I said, what are you guys thinking? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? What's Christianity to you? And then I just sat there, Matt, with my eyes wide as those kids blew my mind and they interacted. They were thinking so thoughtfully. And all I had to do for an hour, we finally, y'all had been out for 15 minutes, and one of them finally said, wow, it's 11.32. They didn't want to leave. They were talking about transmigration of the soul and how it relates to resurrection. They were trying to figure out why we believe life could go eternally that way, but we don't believe it goes eternally that way. I said, well... And I sat back and I just fanned the flames of their minds. Because I don't believe the mind is the devil's playground. I believe that it is a deep part of our soul. And I didn't see anything wrong last week. I saw everything right, Dave and Kelly, as your girl just opened up her brain and said things that were just lovely about God and one of the kids said you know I have been thinking about this so long I don't even know if I believe anymore and one of the other kids said well that's okay didn't you hear what Pastor Sand said the other day even when you don't believe you're still believed in and the kid looked back and said what the heck does that mean 
and they just kept talking, Chris, and using their minds. At the end, one of your kids, that boy looked up and said, I think I really do believe. I just got lots of thoughts in my head. I'm glad nobody here at this church is thumping that kid in the back of the head. And I want to tell you, the more I look through the lenses, the critical lenses, whether it's literary criticism, redactive criticism, scientific criticism, empiricism, the more I look through the lenses, I want to tell you, for me, the more I look through those lenses, the more deeply I believe, the more deeply I feel they do not, these lenses, lead me away from God and spirituality. For me, they do for some people, they don't for me. Every time science comes to a new conclusion that is very provable, I don't look and say, oh my, what's that mean for my faith? I say, I look at God and say, so that's how you did it. Wow. Wow. Darwin doesn't scare me a bit. Pre-scientific language of 5th century BCE, Jewish people in the Mesopotamian area. What a beautiful intuition. What an innovation literarily and thoughtfully. When that writer said it was day after day, really age after age, it, it, it just doesn't feel like God snapped God's finger and the world was there. But it was, a, it was a process of creation. And you know where we came from? Out of the dust of the earth. The image of God was so irrepressible. The image of God was so irrepressibly placed in the organic matter of the universe that the image of God could not be, it could not be quelled. And we rose up out of the primordial ooze. Call it dust. The hand of God touching the organic matter, the irrepressible image of consciousness and thought and emotion and will and volition. It irrepressibly rose up until it walked and it stood. And finally it looked toward the sky and said, who are you and who am I? Somebody said, well, it's diminishing to say that we came from primates. Well, is it any less diminishing to say that we came from a pile of mud? That's all the writer was trying to say. We came up out of the dust of the earth. Science, the mind, and faith are not at odds. They are not at odds at all. And I think many people, not just progressive Christians, but many, many people within Christianity, this is a tenet that many of my Christian friends would say amen to, even on the conservative side. So let us keep not only our hearts open, let us keep our minds open to this growing faith this growing world, this growing consciousness, surely this growth will challenge, change, and correct and give us new visions of God. Can you say amen? amen. So I'll close with this and we'll go. I wrote this yesterday as I was thinking this week about this message. 
an open letter about my relationship with Christ and Christianity. Relationships of every kind function by virtue of roles and rules. Relationships are truly successful when these roles and rules are one, clearly defined, two, mutually beneficial, three, agreed upon without resentment, and four, honored consistently. One of the great challenges we face in our relationships is that we humans over time naturally change. These individual changes unavoidably impact our relationships because they unavoidably impact our understanding of our own identity. In turn, also impacted is the understanding of the roles we play in relationships and the rules we play them by. We change. With that understood, it is incumbent upon the person who has changed to be courageously honest and to request of the other, their partner, a renegotiation of the terms of the relationship. This is a virtuous practice I admittedly have struggled with in the course of my life. With the presence of love and psychological health, often the renegotiation of terms is possible. The mature willingness to make reasonable sacrifices and compromises affords the participants as well as their relationship the ability to not only survive but to flourish and grow. Sadly, at times in a relationship, the renegotiation of terms cannot be successfully made. At this point, many things can happen. Opportunities abound for sadness to morph into anger and anger to manifest in any number of unfortunate ways. Opportunities also abound for this painful crucible of grief to yield our souls much growth. To let go, to detach with love, to not clutch and grab in desperation, but to bless each other with open hands. This is the stuff of soul making. The tears and the tearing of becoming ourselves within social systems like the church and our families of origin is a huge piece of the human journey. Suffice now to say as I think about my relationship with Christ and Christianity, suffice to say now as I think about the own, my own changes, through all of this, I love you, dear Christ, and you as well, beloved Christianity. I have loved you enough to hang in this relationship, though both of us have had ample opportunities to kick one another to the curb and to move on with new lovers and new friends. Many question our relationship, dear Christ, and I understand why, and I'm not offended. My relationship with you is different than theirs. Ours is distinctly freighted with over a quarter of a century of counseling, mediation, and renegotiation. But alas, I am still here. I am here because I choose to be. I am here because I want to be. I am here because you still feel like home to me. One final observation. At times I feel I am being held even more than I am holding. And the name of that holding for me is still Christ. My mind... My exploration has not led me away from this. It has led me deeper into it. The mind is not our enemy. It is the gift of God. Now let's go use it well. Can you say amen? God bless you. We'll see you in the house of the Lord next week.